You're listening to Fermat, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. We're your hosts, Brandon and Allison, and this week we're going to talk about kumis that is or is not kumis, and then just general fermentation and food history, how it connects with society and culture, all this and more in episode 62. So it was another wonderful year of Madison Food Camp this year. I just did that this weekend. What'd you all do? Well, I did, I was kind of like the fill-in guy. I started with, I'm going to do one fermentation related workshop. And even what that workshop was going to be was going to kind of change depending on what was what else was presented as possible topics. Long story short would be I did Vili mm-hmm. and other heirloom yogurts. I did kvass and a little bit about other fermented beverages. And then another one that, I don't know, the title was kind of tough. It was advanced fermentation, but it wasn't really advanced. It was more just a let's talk about and give a broad overview about different kinds of ferments. And that aren't generally covered as much. So okay. things that are kind of similar to me, and most of it focused on mold fermentation. So uh, the thing that's not even technically fermentation biologically, but still in the lump of fermented foods. So talking about koji and tempeh and miso, and and then also a little bit about natto, and and uh, and then just another one to kind of oddball throw in there is the um, the uh, nuka pots, the nukazuke, the rice bran pickles. So they're, they're all things that don't generally come up as often. They're not like the vegetable ferments. They're not the yogurts. They're, they're not the sourdoughs. Right. Well, that makes sense that they fall into the advanced category. I think, yeah, it's not something that is often it's taught. And I think it's also something that is just generally does take a little bit more, a little bit more time to wrap the mind around of, because most of these things aren't from, well, especially here, they're not from uh, the Midwest and so the temperatures, the the incubation, the humidity, different requirements are different. And so they do require different things. So a lot of the time I just spent talking about incubators in that one too. Um, but that was, that, that one was, that was good. That one was, that was the, the, the one that had the least or, or was the broadest. So it didn't, it didn't get to dive in as deep because they're all like 45 minutes long. But more importantly was that uh, after the Vili talk, I was speaking with one of the attendees that was talking about uh, in Colombia, where he's originally from, that they have this fermented dairy product that's using pasteurized milk. They add a little bit of lime or lemon. I can't remember which one and sugar to pasteurized milk and let it leave it out to ferment. Oh, okay. But it's um, not. There's no, nothing inoculated in it, other than maybe something on the lemon rind. There's so pump- it's mostly just whatever's in the air. That's what um, kind of like this. You know, if you do a homemade starter for sourdough, something like that, where you just leave it open. Kind of, and so it'd be fermenting the. Well, it seems. I mean, there's sugar. It, I mm-hmm. mean, so okay, so you've got the the acidity that level. Like you've got more acidity. You're at least controlling that a little bit. But then there is sugar. So there's both just sucrose or, or sh- table sugar. And then there's lactose from the the dairy. So he didn't really have a whole lot of details about it. And I'm still kind of perplexed as to what this is. Like, what is the actual ferment? Because it's it, it's just leaving past. I mean, it's not like it's a, a clabbered milk as in native bacteria that are in raw or unpasteurized milk that have been left out. Like that's going to naturally ferment because there's, there's native bacteria in there. Right. Yeah. Huh. That's, um, I've never really heard of anyone being successful making yogurt that way, leaving it on the counter. I mean, granted he's adding some extra stuff to it. Um, 
and having it firm ferment. Um, yeah, I mean, and I, I I got clarification that it's like it does taste different than I mean, it definitely has like it gets it, it ferments. It's it's not the same product that it was when it starts sitting out a day or more previously. I think it's a few days actually. I can't remember exactly. I need to look into this more. I'm curious because the reality is, is that he says he can't get it to work here. And he oh, says he is using pasteurized milk when he's gone back to Colombia. It's pasteurized milk, but something either different about the way the, the cow's milk is treated, pasteurized, or just the diet of the cows or something is different or native populations of some environmental yeast or bacteria. Sure. Well, I mean, but if it's pasteurized, then it's technically free of all types of microorganisms that would spoil it. So I would think that it would more be something that's in the air. So maybe they just have different – well, they would have different microbes in the air in, in Columbia. You said Columbia? Yes. Than, than here. So that would be different. But also maybe like – maybe what – what you had said with different humidities and relative humidities, um, you know, maybe that true. type of bacteria that grows in that type of yogurt, the Colombian yogurt, um, has very restrictive requirements to to start growing. I don't know. I'm just speculating. From yeah, because what like, you know, I mean, leave a bit of pasteurized milk out, sugar or in lime or not. I mean, it's going to generally. I mean, I guess it's not. Comp- Completely for sure, but most likely it's a blank canvas for the most part. But even still, even when something's pasteurized, uh, uh, unless it's the the ultra pasteurized, there's still a little bit of something in there. And maybe those those few remnants of things are enough to make something just mm-hmm. go bad in, in the United States or or at least here in Wisconsin. But at the at the same time, I would think that that it's we just leave things out and it's going to rot. Like it's not going to be good. Like the milk's not going to be good. I mean, that's the, that's the downside of, uh, at least with raw milk, I leave that out on the countertop. It's going to sour in some sense. I may not like the taste, but it's not going to be bad. It's not going to be unsafe to drink for the most part. Um, right. Well, did he tell you what the name, the the name of this type of yogurt that he's been trying to make here? Well, that or... is what is actually even more interesting about this okay. story. <laughs> because they call it kumis. Oh, which, if you remember correctly, uh, I've talked about it before, but also when Austin was on yeah. from the Fermenters Club, uh, kumis being mare's milk um, uh, fermented dairy product. For, yeah. And I don't have enough information about what that actually is. But Well, I'm sure that everything that you find online or other people that you talk to are mostly familiar with the mare's milk type of kumis instead of the Colombian and this this is why I, I love food and specifically fermentation, but also just food in general, like just the way that words get associated with certain foods based on culture and history and different perspectives. Because like when he came up and said that, because he had actually asked me because I had I had mentioned, as I generally do at, at different points when I'm talking about heirloom yogurts, about like my next big thing that I'm searching for is is kumis because vili with uh geotrichum candidum the, the mold that grows on top that was the last thing that i was really searching for and mm-hmm. uh so this was just a just i was just sharing about that that's kind of where my next step that's kind of what i'm looking for next and afterwards he was telling me it's like well this is this is what we call kumis and so digging a little deeper i was like because i don't really know much about um colombian history or spanish history in the sense of 
occupations or invasions or otherwise. And so I had to just ask him, I was like, well, was there any time when the Mongols, uh, um, would have, uh, been involved or invaded otherwise. And, and there was, and I could be getting this, this slightly, slightly wrong, but invasions and, uh, and conflicts with Arabs and, uh, Mongols, which again, I bring up the Mongols part because that's where the, the mare's milk comes in. That's where they are the ones that started this. And that's where it's stayed popular in Russia, uh, is, is through that influence from the, the, the Mongols back in the day, like Genghis Khan times and different things like that. So, you have something it, it, that's where it gets so fascinating to me because you have invaders that totally change like the food and all other aspects. It just ends up getting absorbed into the culture and what is the Spanish culture, what uh, became the Colombian culture. They absorbed that fermented dairy name of Kumis, but it was the invaders that they, in, in, in that they, um, they absorbed that name from. Hmm. Um, and, and that's like so much of history. I mean, so much of poor food or different kinds of things like these, these things that are now like totally detached from their historical perspectives that sometimes we're even referring to as delicacies when it's like, well, or even not delicacies, but like take something like pizza. It's like, that was like poor man's food at, at one point, And it's turned into what it is now, which is not, uh, not that, I mean, it's got all kinds of more toppings on it, all kinds of different things to it. It's just, it's interesting how food morphs and changes. Uh, yeah, no, that's, it's a really, that's a really good point. And even bringing up the Mongols and traveling food and everything like that. It made me think of when we were talking about, um, different types of food preservation and canning and how, uh, Napoleon had, um, that contest and how that changed the way that people would preserve foods, um, in a slightly different way than fermented foods, uh, but it just made me think of that, you talking about how um, the Spanish and Colombian history is somehow related to Arabs and trans transporting all of those different types of food that somehow the name gets kind of um, transformed into a different type of fermented dairy product than what it originally was. So it's just interesting. Yeah, it's just really cool how all that stuff kind of goes together and history is made that way through food. Well, and your, in your, your mention of Napoleon, I mean, that was based on needing that for, for soldiers traveling. So again, another invasions, war, conflict, all these kind of things, how sometimes it's a lot of, um, out of a lot of negative clashing and, and war and other aspects like that is that, that food is born out of it. Uh, and that, that new, that culture is malleable and it continues to change. And I mean, uh, that, that these foods just, I, whether it's the name or the actual food itself just continues to morph over time and, and has for as long as people have been warring with each other and, uh, invading each other, I guess. Hmm. Well, was he really surprised when, or did he know that Kumis is also, um, a you know, mare's milk, fermented mare's milk or was he like kind of like this is what I consider kumis? I've never heard of anything else. This is what it is, or well, yeah, he came because he said he he knew of a kumis, but it was not a mare's milk kumis. So I don't think he was familiar with the that kumis. Um, okay, uh, but uh, but the, but that's where I haven't. Which actually, I should have totally asked someone else that was in uh, the Kavas class because I had someone in the Kavas class that's actually from Russia, and so I was able to get a little bit more confirmation about about bread Kavas, um, in in that sense. But uh, I didn't even think about asking about Kumis. 
because again, mm-hmm. that's in, in Russia as well, because the Mongolia, Russia, the, the Mongols and interactions and all of those kind of things. So much of the fermented dairies and, and, uh, otherwise, I mean, and kefir, it's like all in that region and popular for a reason because it has historical connections. So that's sometimes I wonder, it's like, I need to go to Russia. I need to just go there and, and see all the ferments that are still going on today because kvass is still something that's sold in the streets and, and, and people still making their homes and different things like that. So, um, people are still actively fermenting. It's like there's, there, there hasn't been that disconnect of generations just stopping yeah. no longer doing it like here. Well, I feel like it's more of, um, and everywhere else, but the United States, everyone's making fermented foods at home. Um, I'm not sure why in the U.S. I think, I mean, there's probably lots of different reasons why we've kind of lost a little bit of our fermented food culture um, and it's, you know, coming coming back. Uh, but yeah, I mean, even in France, they still make their own bread. You know, if you go to the country houses and they, they themselves are making all sorts of different kinds of fermented vegetables and um, that's still a huge part of their history and background and what they do as a family. Um, whereas here, it's not really something that the everyday person um, does. Uh, well, even so still, it's just interesting. Even areas where it's been very traditional for many, many years, and maybe it's a uh, the, the only the newest generations not doing it. Somewhere like South Korea, where where kimchi is is something that uh, Kim Jong that that fall annual festival of getting people to get or not festival necessarily, but uh, getting family members and friends and neighbors together to make uh, kimchi to last the winter or maybe even just in people's apartments doing it in the cities. But nowadays, like it's more common for people as far as I've read to, to be just getting these kind of things at, um, at the convenience stores to, because it's convenient. It's, it's easier to mm-hmm. not be making it themselves or they're detached from family, their fam- family's rural and they live in the city. And so they just kind of stop doing that. And I think that the United States has a little bit more of that. Well, for one, um, melting pot, all new, no, I mean, uh, a few hundred years of history isn't really enough. Whereas, you know, you take a lot of history, some of these places, it's a lot harder for them to shake these old habits, uh, not shake them, but I mean, to lose them. Um, whereas here it's like, well, it was so easy because it's like, uh, everyone had their different, different food cultures anyway. And it's kind of all just mashed together. And then you take something like world war two that totally changes the way things are done and different efficiencies after that. And then, yeah, I mean, it just makes sense that like eventually we just get so disconnected from these things and we don't have the historical past to really connect to anyway. It's sad, but at the same time now we have a lot of people doing things that arguably are just as good or maybe sometimes better, uh, at least on a artisanal scale of, of like some of these old world food items, cheeses, otherwise that are now being like thought of in different ways. Instead of because, because we are not like we're not stuck with the old traditions like we don't we don't have to do it a certain way it's like let's do let's let's take these old traditions and try them in new ways so maybe there's I, some positive to it I guess that's true because in the I mean that that just made me think of like the in the brewing world you people American style brewing is so different in craft beer um, and what craft brewers are doing I mean they're not creating new beers but they're di- creating different I guess different styles of beer, more in uh, robust, robust beers, and they're doing all sorts of different crazy stuff. Like a few weeks ago, when we were talking about the um, the ten year old beer, I believe from Sam Adams, is that yeah, um, or the oh, I can't the remember one that, exactly in, the details that included. 
Well, we weren't talking about, it was like a tangent of an, it was in the article about a beer from Sam Adams that included some bit of aged beer from over 20 years. Wasn't That's that right? right. Yeah. But, but that wasn't like, the story that we were talking about, but yeah, like all no, these different was, random things, but, but, but they, yeah, all of those different things where, um, you know, the people are in the brewing world are taking, not just, they're just not making just lager beer, um, IPAs, um, you know, just pilsners, that sort of thing, but they're taking it to another level and somehow creating some new spin on it. So I guess that's what us Americans are doing is we're taking maybe fermented foods and kind of twisting it a little bit. So it's a little different. Um, So maybe that's just our thing. Well, yeah. And it's not that these kind of things aren't happening in other countries as well. Like um, novel ideas are still being approached elsewhere, but I feel like the baggage is potentially so much more in some of these other regions where it's, it's a little bit harder of a sell. Whereas here, like, sure, we want the novel and the new and we'll try different things. And, and as long as there's someone willing to spend the premium that it costs for, for a small batch of something unique, then, I mean, there's just the, the environment that supports that kind of creativity, at least on the, on the commercial scale. Sure. Um, Sure. And then on the, and then that's the great thing. Like I know for myself, like at, at, at the home level, I can kind of do whatever I want fermentation wise and I can find the flavors that I really like because, well, for one, I'm free from having had been, having grown up with many ferments. So I don't have preconceived notions of what I like or don't like. And I'd also don't have like connections to like a grandparent or something like that, that, you know, it's like, I have these fond memories of doing, uh, you know, any kind of ferment or canning or otherwise, like maybe if I had had that, like maybe if I had had like grandparents that were like really into canning or something like that, maybe I wouldn't even be doing fermentation because I'd be so entrenched in that canning world. Whereas like not having done anything to kind of get to choose whatever I want once I was old enough to start thinking about those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, so like I, at the home level, I can just kind of slap together whatever I want. And, you know, it's to a certain extent, that's what I was doing when I was I was writing the the cookbook that's coming out this summer too. It's like I was just able to just I didn't need to follow any kind of tradition in coming up with different recipes. You know, it's like kimchi tastes great with a lot of different things, um, and they don't have to. And I mean, I know that that's not like novel in the sense of like there's kimchi going in all kinds of things in in restaurants or whatnot, and that's some of the inspiration for some of that. But like then there's things like like tempeh. Tempeh is amazing with bacon grease, but like traditionally being more of a a, a meat alternative protein, not as often mixed with with meat oils or, or fats or different things like that. But I think that, have you had tempeh fried in bacon grease? I have not. Have you? I'll have have to try it now. I mean, that sounds delicious. (laughs) Are you a tempeh eater? You know, I've kind of had it occasionally. Um, and I just don't know if I've had really good tempeh, so I can't really be, uh, I'm probably not the best person to ask. Um, I mean, we've had, I've had it like at the store, you know, you buy it or at a restaurant, but I don't know. I mean, it, to me, it's kind of like how you feel about tofu. It's kind of like, nah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the thing. You should, like, it has to be homemade tempeh or like fresh tempeh. Like, I I find that the store bought stuff, like any of the stuff that's in kind of pack, packages, like it's just not the same. And um, I have not tried a restaurant made tempeh, but I guess there's a local place around here on the complete opposite side of town that I've never been to, but that I need to go to because there's the, um, the tempeh is made there. And sometimes they even teach tempeh workshops. I just learned to this last time too. So I'm definitely gonna have to go check out that restaurant that I cannot think of the name of at this time, but I'm sure that you have to have Indonesian restaurants there that would have 
like tempeh that is like a traditional kind of tempeh. Um, oh, I'm sure we do. I just haven't really, you know, search, you know, searched for it or gone out to look for for it. But you know, and it tastes so good when it is fresh, but it tastes even better when it's in in baking grease or lard or any kind of um, fattiness. It's it's just it, it, it's like that umami flavor that um, that smoothness of soybeans and then the just like the rounding out of the flavor with that like bacon grease bacon taste it's great mm. you, really, you really have to just... that sounds pretty delicious actually <laughs> well and you can um, start making some very easily because i just actually saw like i did was doing that workshop talking about incubators but actually just in my uh, newsfeed type of stuff i was seeing today that there's a YouTube video for how to build a temperature controller using the same PID controller that I think I've mentioned before. It's the, I think it goes under different names, but it's like, it's just a little cheap PID controller that I got for $17 on, on Amazon or whatnot. And it's mm-hmm. just in Celsius readings. But the great thing about it is that it can control both a heat source and a cooling source for ultimate temperature control. Yeah, no, I mean, I haven't watched the video that you sent me because it's 40, 40 minutes, minutes long. Yeah. Um, but I can I've, you know, flipped through the video and, you know, watched little snippets of it and stuff. And that's I I just love that people are, you know, DIYing some of this stuff and kind of creating creating this and thinking outside the box. And maybe they're not thinking it's not necessarily thinking outside of the box. Um, no, he's putting the it. controller in a box. Yeah, <laughs> but the that he put it up there for other people to um, learn from and uh, to make their own because you know it always again like going back to it always makes you feel better when you can do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean at least I, I I think well I would say there's probably a subset of people. I think some people always feel better just letting someone else take care of something unless it's the one thing that they care about. But I yeah I'm like I'm definitely in that sense. It's like it's just so rewarding even if it took me more time. Sometimes, like even if the price is relatively equivalent, just the fact that I was able to do it myself and learn something new is mm-hmm. enough to make it rewarding. So, are you going to make this? Have you have you made it? Well, I actually have two of these these same identical controllers or PID controllers, and it will be nice to actually watch a video where I can make sure I have mine wired correctly because I don't think okay. I have one of them wired correctly. I couldn't get the the cooling to actually work. So, um, or as in like both plugs to work, I could like plug something into, uh, because I guess stepping back for anyone that hasn't watched this video, I'll put it in the show notes for sure. But, um, it's like, this one's like a STC 1000. I don't know if that's what mine is, but it's just, it's a very simple little box that like has no wiring to it. So, but I wire it up to just a little, uh, like a electrical outlets, like a tube, um, outlet thing, um, wall outlet, like with two, uh, prong spots this is how electrical i am i guess <laughs> it uh, has a it has the two outlets like so that you can plug two things into it right? uh, yes correct and and i feel like there's better terminology for those things but yes now you now you know what it, you've got it pictured so i can stick the the heat source into the upper plug is how i have it set up i can stick the heat source into that and it will turn on and off the heat source but it will turn on Actually, I don't even remember anymore. I've done something mm-hmm. where I pretty much melted a, uh, a a little dorm refrigerator, the inside of it. I still use it. It's still usable. It's not like melted through. I actually got one hole in it. Um, but it would, it, whatever happened, 
I didn't have it quite set up correctly and I was testing it and I was checking it and it seemed like it was all going well because it was in the basement. It was in the winter. So it took a long time for it to like reach up to the temperature of like 30 degrees Celsius that I was going for. And then I got busy and went back to go check it again. Luckily I didn't have anything in there, but when I went to go check it again, uh, the heat had never turned off. So it just kept going above 30 degrees Celsius. Oh no. Yeah. It sounds like there's something wrong with, um, your circuit somehow. No, I'm I, not sure I, I've got it how now. the circuit works in that way. But. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I don't, I maybe, I don't remember what made that happen, but I, I fixed it. So I mean, I use it regularly and it works great, but I still need to get the cold stuff figured out now. But I'll be able to. And so will you. You should totally get one of these things if you need any kind of temperature controller because this guy's even talking about it for uh, for beer. Yeah, I think it's a – I'm going to – I probably won't make it myself. I'll ask my husband to do it because he's more of the electrical kind of guy. He did some of the wiring in our house um, and he knows more about it. I know more of like the terminology. Like I know what a junction box is and <laughs> like that kind of stuff. But um, now I kind of want one. Um <laughs> You should totally do it. And, and this guy's prefacing as something that's under $50. I argue that it's even cheaper than that because like, just don't even get wires, just hack up a old electrical uh, or an old um, power cord. That's yeah. What, Cause then you can just like take all the wires out of that. And, yeah. And um, you need one plug anyway. So just use the one plug end and then the rest, you've got a lot of wire. Mm-hmm. Well, and then even the two outlets that you're talking about, um, those are at Home Depot. I believe they're like 10 cents a piece. Like they're really cheap. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, you could probably do it for less than what you said. And, um, and of course, having like a because he's building it into an electrical box or different stuff like that. And I really like when I finally get around to following these videos and setting both of mine up nicely, because I actually only have one of them set up right now. But to have two of those temperature controllers is going to be great. Um, more so probably for winter next time, because it's hard to keep things at warm enough temperatures or consistent mm-hmm. temperatures with wood burning stove and then a super cold basement. So it's really nice to have those kind of things over the winter. So I might not do it much this summer, but when I do have both of those set up, it will just be great. I think I'll build like little wood boxes for them because I really, I have a router that I don't really use very much. It'd be nice to like be able to make some nice little boxes to put those things in. Um, and then it would probably just besides my time, it'd be cheap, definitely cheaper than $50 because Again, those things are like $17 online. So that's, that's the only real expense. And then everything else is just scraps. Right. And I mean, it'd be kind of nice too in the winter, what you're talking about, since you have such a fluctuation in temperature, just to be able, you can't be home all the time or be constantly watching everything. Um, So that would be a nice additive too, just to be able to walk away knowing that you don't have to worry about your fermentations, hopefully. Oh yeah. And uh, yeah, that it, it will also be nice. I actually, now that I'm thinking about it out loud, I highly doubt I'd be able to get away with it, but, um, it'd be nice. I'm, I'm remodeling my kitchen and I was like, huh, I wonder if I could just have like a, f- a cupboard with a light bulb in it. That's like a little fermentation incubator, just like right there in the kitchen. Sure. I mean, I think that's totally feasible, but I don't know how big your kitchen is. It's not <laughs> super big. And I just don't know if I'd, uh, if, if I'd be able to, you know, if, if, if I could really take up that much space, yeah, it may not be as doable, but that'd be nice. But it'd be, but again, it's kind of silly for me to want to do that. I mean, I have a basement. I mean, you don't even have that. Like I got plenty of space that I can put an incubator in the basement, but sometimes the convenience of, okay, I'm really not lazy. Yeah. It's not really a laziness. It's just like the aspect of being able to like check on it more regular. If it's something that like I need to check on, um, like natto or something like that. Like natto is something that I can easily forget about. And then it just gets over ammoniated, Mm -hmm. um, in the basement because it's over fermented. 
Hmm. Well, it is kind of nice to keep track of and to be able to check on your fermentations when they are going on because I just had this week um, a little bit of an accident, I I guess, um, with my miso that I made a few weeks ago. I haven't found, you know, like Austin was talking about putting it in the back of the cupboard and forgetting about it for a year and um, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I haven't found a really good place yet to put my miso, so I've been storing it on top of um, our washing machine. Um, it's kind of out of the way, but our washing machine and um, is – in the same area as our kitchen. Uh, and the other day I went to go move it because I was going to put some stuff on top of the washing machine and, uh, it had bubbled over. I had it all over the, the, um, I had them in bag bags and stuff. So it had seeped through the, the bag itself and left a whole bunch of, um, you know, brine and stuff on the washing machine. I'm glad that I found it, um, so that I could, you know, clean it up and that sort of thing. But I, it was kind of nice that it was there. So, you know, I didn't find out a year later that that had happened and it, you know, it had gone bad. So do you think it's salvageable? Yeah, it's it's salvageable. It it definitely is. I took it out of the bag and looked at it and kind of cleaned it up on the outside. I think that it was just a little too full. And, um, um, I had put some, um, I don't have really good weights for the types of jars I put, put the miso in. So I had taken, um, like Ziploc bags, filled them with water um, and kind of stuffed those in there. So I think just, uh, you know, the water coming out of the bag um, and it, it wasn't completely secured and uh, closed at the top. I just kind of seeped through. So um, it's still there. I think a lot of the, uh, the, the juice that Austin was talking about, I, it's slipping my mind. The, the tamari. The tamari, the tamari was um, coming out. So, and that's the stuff he said is the best and people don't get rid of that. Or give it out. So I, I was a little like, oh man, I need to save this because I just want to try it. I, I've done that too with uh, with with the shorter misos, where the yeah they can they can definitely get a little vigorous at the beginning, um, and especially depending on the temperature. So that's 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 why the when I start doing longer aged misos, I'm going to try flip top jars, uh, those like Fido jars. Mm-hmm. There's a guy over somewhere, I think like Sweden or something like that. I've seen a blog posts of him that he does that and he does it regularly and he just fills it like three quarters full or maybe two thirds full mm-hmm. and um, has no issues with mold or anything like that. He doesn't weigh it down or do anything. He just seals it. And then it's kind of like uh, like those Fido flip top jars are supposed to be anyway. Like they'll allow a little bit of pressure out. They're not going to get fully pressurized. Um, yeah. And, uh, but the clamp is tight enough that it's not really going to let much oxygen or anything like that. So I would like that because that's the one aspect of miso that's a little bit more work or time intensive and potential risk of the tamari bleeding out is if the jar is not large enough or the weight's not strong enough. And just the, the, the action of doing all those kind of things and putting a lot of extra salts and different stuff like that. And, um, since it is going to be exposed to air instead, letting it be something that's not really ever exposed to air. Like yeah. is what it we really kind of want anyway. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's what I'm going to do when I try that. So I'm curious to see if that will work or if I will still have spillage. Well, let me know um, if you are successful. But um, you had also mentioned, which is, you know, going into something else that deals with uh, tops and clamps. Um, you had shared with me um, a Kickstarter Oh yeah, I, I think that we should talk about it again at uh, a later date too. But yeah, the Farm Curious fermenting set on Kickstarter. I think everyone should go check it out. I'll put it in the show notes. 
but uh you saw that there like the little what are those bottles i mean it's like um it's just a ready-made airlock system for like i think the final product once it's no longer a kickstarter thing is going to be like sending people a little package kit with tops airlocks and um they put it on wide mouth jars of any size yeah and that's what's kind of convenient about it because i mean sometimes i don't have enough um vegetables to ferment or um it's kind of something strange that i'm experimenting with so i don't want to make a huge uh like um you know, gallon container or gallon ferment. So it's nice to have like these little smaller jars um, that where I use the smaller jars and I don't have a really good way to um, close them besides putting the, I, I just, you know, you, I can burp it every day, but it's kind of nice having something like this, but it has the airlock already attached to it. Yeah. I think that, uh, I th- well, and it seems like it's uh, other people like this kind of thing too, because they've got 56 days to go. I mean, it just started. And they're, they have a $15,000 goal. They're at almost, uh, or they're just a little under 5,000 now. So they're about a third of the way there. Wait, was that right? Yeah. 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 Okay. I, I was yeah. all of a sudden questioned my math. <laughs> yeah. They're a little less than a third, but, um, yeah, but that's pretty awesome. 106 um, backers. Yeah. Well, and they, she still has so much time, 55 days. Wow. But I think there is some, I, 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 I've like fooled around with Kickstarter, uh, not myself, but like listened and, and followed along with the kind of stuff that they do. I mean, a lot of it, you, you got to get that hump at the beginning. Like it's, it's got to have enough momentum to carry it through because it's like, I don't remember exactly. And maybe it just refers more to like tech products or whatnot that I've more followed. But like at a certain point, it's like if, if they're not over a certain point at a, a certain level of their goal at a certain point, then it's very unlikely that they're going to like raise it all. So it's very good sign that she's got this much at the beginning. So maybe, uh, maybe we'll get her on the show or something and talk to us. And, um, because I'd like to hear more about this. Yeah. It's, I think it's a really neat idea. I've been trying to think of different ways to, um, add, um, fermentation locks to different containers. And I like the way that she has it where you can, um, you know, it, the, it's a flip top too. So you can close the, when you're not using the um, fermentation lock, you can close it. And then you, I'm, I'm, I would probably, I don't know if this is what it's intended for, but take the airlock out when it's done fermenting, close the lid and then just put that whole thing in my fridge. Yeah. I, I think that's so it's I, all, you know, all encompassing one thing where I don't really have to worry about transferring stuff and cleaning jars and that sort of thing. Yes. The, it, it might sound like we're just being lazy, but to a certain extent, like doing more ferments, it's just any little time saving thing can be a huge difference as to whether or not I'm going to do a certain ferment or not. Like, as in like, if I've got a lot of things fermenting, the easier it can be. Like if I don't have to switch jars or, or clean something to then store it into a night, another little jar that's going to have to be clean later. I mean, these things take time as is anyway. So the, the, any little time saver I think is a good thing. Mm-hmm. So, and plus I like the idea of this, of uh, it's like, yeah, sure. Something's going to be shipped to someone, but it's, it's not an entire, um, it's not, it's not super heavy. So I, I kind of like that idea too of about like, um, uh, because shipping he- heavy things is expensive. I think, uh, I think that's the main, uh, and nothing to break. I think that's the other plus side. I mean, I, I, I love some of the other kinds of fermented things out there, but like, I like this concept too, because it's like, it's simple, get someone started relatively, uh, inexpensive. Um, and yeah, more people fermenting the better. Yeah. And, um, just what you said too, it, it 
getting more people started because some, sometimes when you do make a lot of sauerkraut burn just as an example you make a gallon of it and you're um not quite sure and you're new to fermenting you may not be committed to making an entire gallon but that's i, I guess that's another way to get more people involved is to have them do little smaller ferments and mason jars and kind of test it out or if, even if it's just one person that probably lives by themselves or not that they don't have friends or anything they could share share it with, but you know sometimes it's just nice to. Did you have a little uh, did you listen to the video or watch the video? No, I haven't. Oh, you just kind of you you said a few things that uh, that she kind of said in the video about like you know not always wanting to do larger sizes or different things like that. Oh. So it sounded like you were. <laughs> so yes, nope. you know exactly what this the the target market is for. Her, so um. <laughs> well, I can see. I mean, that's a really practical thing for. For me and like my husband, there's just two of us and we can't eat a whole gallon of sauerkraut. So it only makes sense. Um, and we can only share so much of it with our friends so often before they're tired of sauerkraut and we had to move on to something else. So um, just I was just thinking off the top of my head of what it would be useful for in our house. <laughs> hey, yeah, no, it, I think it, I think it makes sense. Smaller, uh, more often, more time to experiment. Yeah. Although there's, and that's where it gets challenging. That's where sometimes it would be nice to be a commercial producer of something because the ability to experiment on the large side, I mean, that's, that's the side of experimentation. I don't get to experiment with as often, even though I do want to do a 50 gallon drum of something this fall, I um, will have to see if all my cabbages survive and if I could do something like that. But yeah, that's the one side. It's like, there's the small side of aspect of like being able to experiment with a lot of different things but i also want to see what is the fermentation process like when it gets that big and like how are the flavor flavors different so but that's for a different time at some other time should we just uh should we call it a call it a day well i wanted to briefly mention um the nordic food lab before before we wrap up and stuff because there was uh, we had mentioned or talked about uh the vinegar um series that they did oh yeah uh, and then we had briefly mentioned something about uh, how they had one about Veely. And I read it, you know, last week, um, you know, listened to the little, it's probably like 30 seconds long, maybe not even that long um, audio. Uh, and I mean, the, 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 the person who wrote it, her name is Edith Salmon. I'm going to, I'm really going to botch her last name. So I apologize. Salmon. <laughs> I can't even. Salmonin. Um, I'm really like, sorry. It, well, the question is, is it like salmon? Because then it'd be salmon in. No, no, it's <laughs> well, because <laughs> like, you know, sa- because the way it kind of looks to me is like salmon, like salmon, well, you don't say salmon. So it's like salmon in. It might be salmon in. And so I will, um, Edith, I'm really sorry if I botched your last name. I, I'm, I apologize. Um, but I like the way that she set it up I and she has all of these pictures. And if you scroll to the bottom, she even gives you, um, you know, uh, organic chemistry diagrams of how um, the the part that makes the yogurt ropey is an extra. Um, I'm sorry. It's exopolysaccharides. A, yes. And it's an exopolysaccharide that uh, a certain type of lactic acid bacteria makes. Um which is kind of what I suspected and um, just through like school and stuff like that. I thought it was an, um, extra, or an exopolysaccharide, but I wasn't sure. And I know that some types of wines make these types of polysaccharides. Um, and that's also a, a – well, in this case, it's a, it's a benefit. But in wine, you can have ropey wine for – and that's not – that's detrimental and um, not that great. Uh, but I like that she incorporated the, the – um, 
the diagrams and how they look and orientation wise and um, that sort of thing. So from a scientist perspective, I thought that was pretty neat. But she also does a really great job of explaining, again, because this is what we talked about last time, you know, Nordic Food Lab, they have the vinegar um, expose and series was very well done. And this was very well done, too. Um, And with the pictures and stuff. So um, yeah, if you, you haven't could, had a chance to read it, people should go check it out again. It answers a lot of questions about all sorts of different stuff um, about yogurts. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a good read. And also the uh, audio section is I don't know if you mentioned it, though. It's it's a, a poem. So the English version and the Finnish version, you should listen to both because it's, it's again, like you were saying, only about 30 seconds long. So you can listen to it in both. It's a poem. So it's going to sound beautiful either way. Yeah, I only listened to the English part. Um, I didn't. I mean, it's thirty seconds long, but I just didn't really think of listening to it in Finnish. But maybe I, I will now, just to hear what they what the what Finnish sounds like. I'm not sure if I've ever heard it before. Um, but you, um, you also you also bring up a good point about uh, about the the Nordic Food Lab does do things that they are uh, different. Like I always think of Nordic Food Lab as the Nordic Food Lab, but I forget that there's the bylines on it too. They have it just so tiny, and there's no nothing about these different people. But uh, yeah, well, we totally forgot to uh, mention Ariel Johnson was the one that did the one on vinegar. All five parts of the vinegar science one too. So wanted to make sure we got that in there too, um, because these are uh, I I think they just have kind of like different people coming in at different points. So it's a Nordic Food Lab again. It's freaking sweet awesome yeah it's pretty it's a pretty cool um website just to check out um if you just are a lover of food in general yes and lover of fermentation they do quite a bit of that too they do so anything else no i think um we've kind of covered our bases of what we wanted to briefly talk about and we kind of talked about other stuff we weren't even planning on talking about well it's been a good day then so uh I will. You will find all of these things that we meant to talk about and all the things that we didn't mean to talk about in the show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash 62. And you can find us on Twitter at firmup, on Facebook at firmup, and uh, anywhere else at firmup. And until next time, firm up.